Well, good morning. We set out extra rows of chairs, so glad we did. Uh, <laughs> well, he says when two or more, we qualify, so we're okay. Um, let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for your word, for your son, and we know all belongs to you and we know that you have shared it with us. You are such a graceful and generous Lord. Lord, we invite in the spirit and we ask that today we learn more as, we're, uh, as we, that we come, in, come out of here today a little bit more knowledgeable of your word than when we came in. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's worship our Lord. Well, as we come on Sunday, and we have so many of our, our good, dear, precious friends missing, I think of Andrew and Sherry and Mike and Kathy and Bonnie, and who else is missing? Cheryl and Bill, Cheryl and Bill are on vacation. So, yes, this is a, a definitely a skeleton crew, so we are a small family this morning. But in our small family way, we can remember Christ is coming again. And you know, I could stand up here in case Frank didn't want to and preach a whole sermon on Christ is coming again, because we live with a sense of imminence that he is coming. And we have such a beautiful church to look out the window and say, is he coming on those clouds? Well, that's what this is about today looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the best ways to get rid of discouragement is to remember that Christ is coming again. What is happening in your life right now is not going to last forever. The most thrilling, glorious truth in all the world is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when we look about today, and see the pessimism on every side. And this book was written in 2002. And I'm going to say the pessimism has uh, exponentially grown. Um, when we look at this pessimism on every side, we should remember that the Bible is the only book in the world that reliable, reliably predicts the future. The Bible is more modern than tomorrow's news report. It says the cons consummation of all things shall be coming again in Jesus Christ as he returns to this earth. This truth gives us hope, but it should also sober us up and make us more diligent. After all, we do not know when Christ will return. Jesus himself said of that day and of that hour, no man knows, not, not even himself, only not in the angels in heaven, but my father only. Believing in the return of Christ doesn't make us less concerned about the world. It should make us more concerned about the world. The time is short and we need to be sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ with all who will listen. Amen.
may be seated. Psalm 32 begins with a blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from trouble, you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That sounds like something we should do, to be rejoicing in our Lord. Would you like to stand with me as we recite the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
New Testament reading today comes from James chapter, 13, chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, 3, and 7, and 8. I think I may have done just 4, 3, 7, and 8. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and self-ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle for, of, at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of, of mercy and good deeds. It sh shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacekeepers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. We have a responsive reading. O oh God, wisdom of the universe, you bear the pain of your people. Grant us the gift of wisdom, that we may discern your way, and live justly and graciously amid the struggles of this world. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless the gifts that we give today. We know that they all came from you. They all belong to you. And you have entrusted each one of us with some. So we ask that you could provide us the wisdom to use them wisely, to use them as you, as you would have us to do to spread your word, to be able to be a place that can be open and willing to share your word with others. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we do the doxology? Last week we talked about the pre-existence of God, um, that he has always been, he always will be, 
And, uh, and so this week we want to dig into the creation account in chapter 1 of Genesis. Uh, but before I do that, I'd like to explain, Caroline said uh, that I needed to um, just explain a little bit better uh, God's infinity um, in our eternal life. And I'm going to read uh, Wayne Grudem, what he says about it. He said, therefore, the different, uh, he said, therefore, there will still be a succession of moments one after another and things happening one after another in heaven. So in other words, heaven, although it is, um, um, <laughs> there's still time in heaven. That's the whole point of it. We will experience eternal life, not an exact duplication of God's attribute of eternity. In other words, we, um, we are not infinite like God is. Only God is infinite um, outside of time. But we are, we are temporal, we are in time, but the whole thing of it is that in heaven, there will, uh, time will never end. I mean, time will, you know, there will always be a succession of time. That's what eternal life means. That we, will, uh, we will still be in time, but that time won't end. Okay, does that clarify it all, or does that just muddy the waters more? <laughs> okay. Um, so, for example, in Revelation 22, 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit, fruit every month. So in heaven, then, uh, you know, if something is going to yield fruit every month, then there has to be time. Um, and that's all we're saying. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Okay, so we're going to dig into the seven days of creation, actually six of them this morning. And, um, but we're not going to get into a lot of exposition of the scriptures we're going to talk about more background kinds of stuff that are needed to understand Genesis 1. So the first thing we need to look at is just some of these, the structure of the days of creation. Uh, God spoke the whole creation into existence. Then we have day one and day four are similar. Day two and day five are similar. Day three and day six are similar. And we'll read those in a, in a little bit. And we also can look at the formulae that surround these. Um, and I believe that the formula, formulae are given um, because God's word was shared orally. It was an oral communication. So there was a recurrent pattern so that you could memorize it easily. Um, and much of, you know, much of what we see, uh, for example, in the book of Psalms is oral. And so... There are patterns and there are, you know, memory aids built into the text. So, for example, um, in, in, these, uh, in these six days then, we'll see, and God said, shows up ten times. Let there be, shows up eight times. And it was so, seven times. And God made, seven times. God saw that it was good, seven times. And a mention of the days... Uh, six or seven times. So, let's dig into then the days of creation that we see uh, in this text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We talked about that last week. Now, the earth 
formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, now, some people uh, believe, and it's called the gap theory, that there was a great gap between verses one and verse one and verse two. So God created, and then there's a gap where the earth is formless, is is formless and empty, um, and then we see the creation account continue. Verse, verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> and God said, let there be light, and there was light. He saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day, you can see those recurring formulae in here. So, on day one then, God created light, and then he separated light from darkness. Day two. Beginning in verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse between waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God calls the, called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So on the second day then, <coughs> how many of you had these in Sunday school? I didn't. Uh, huh? Well, I mean that, you know, that you, you went through the days, the six days of creation, and <coughs> yeah, it's a great, yeah, great stuff for um, God, So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, there was morning the second day. So on the second day then, sky and water are created on the earth. Day three. Beginning verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Okay, so we see that recurrent. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees in the land that produce fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds and it was so. God produced, the land produced vegetation bearing, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So on day three then, dry ground appears, the land, the seas, and vegetation is created. And then day four, Beginning of verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky, separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and year. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So we had uh, first day, verse, day one, God creates light, separates the light from the darkness. Day two, sky and water are created. Day three, dry ground appears, seas and vegetation created. And then day four, and God... Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the, and let them 
We already read that. Okay. So day four, the sun, moon, and stars are created. Okay, so we're, we're seeing progressively then God creating all of creation. Verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth <coughs> across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with the water teams according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. There was evening, there was morning the fifth day. Okay, so <clears throat> each day, then God creates something else. Um, in day five then, the flying creatures, the birds and all the flying creatures and the sea creatures are created. So now the, the, um, <clears throat> the skies are full of the birds and the seas are full of the creatures of the sea. And then day six, and this is the crowning day. God said in verse 24, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to his kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so on day six then, first part of day six, God created livestock, all the domesticated animals, uh, you know, the horses and the, and the cows and the pigs and all those uh, different uh, livestock <clears throat> domesticated animals. Also all the wild animals, the tigers and the lions and the leopards and all those things, and then all the crawly things, the things that crawl on the earth. <clears throat> well, then, um, so everything is created but man. Okay, so the second part of day six then, God creates man. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In other words, man would have dominion over all, everything else that he had created. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then in chapter 2, we'll see where, how God did that. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. <clears throat> so God saw all that he had made, and, and this is the first time he uses this. Every time before he said, it is good, um, and this time he says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. He looked at the whole thing, and he said, wow, it's very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So in the sixth day then, man is created in the image of God, given dominion over the whole creation, and apparently at this point, both man and animals are vegetarians. He says he's given them every green plant for food. So <clears throat> rather than go into uh, a whole exposition of, of, of this text, I would like to back up a bit and talk about what has really been difficult over 
I particularly in our lifetime, is this conflict between science and the Bible. And we hear about this constantly, um, that there is conflict in, uh, between science and what science is coming up with and what the biblical account has, has come up with. So let's talk about that whole thing. Um, <coughs> and let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse, verse, uh, beginning verse 18. The wrath of God <coughs> is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now, what this is saying, this is really important, is that we can see God both in nature, and, that, and, and we can see the nature of God, both in, in the nature that he has created, and in the special, what we call the special revelation, in the Bible. And the two are given by God. Okay, God gave us the creation. He's the one that created all of it. God also gave us the Bible. And so there should not be any conflict between those two areas, right? If God made it, and God made it, then there should be harmony between the two. Let's look at, then at some of the principles of interpretation. How do, we, how do we do this? How do we reconcile the science with the biblical account? And, and I do that because, I mean, there has been a, an incredible attack, I believe, in our generation on the veracity of Scripture. And a lot of it comes out of science. Okay? So let's look. Um, and I'd like to go to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. All right, so what this is, it's a group of scholars who came together in 1978 in Chicago. That's why it's called the Chicago Statement. And it's some of those, uh, some of those scholars I know personally. Um, and they came together to ask the question, what does the biblical inerrancy mean? When we say that God's word is true, what do we mean by that? You know, if we, if we pick it all apart. Well... <clears throat> Let me give you some of the principles that came, they came up with. And these are the principles of interpretation of reconciling the Bible with science. We affirm that any pre-understandings which the interpreter brings to Scripture should be in harmony with Scripture teaching and subject to correction by it. We deny that Scripture should be required to fit alien pre-understandings inconsistent with itself, such as naturalism, evolutionism, scientism, secular humanism, and relativism. Okay, now all this is saying is this, that, that if there is a conflict between science and what the Bible says, we as Christians, we go with Scripture. Okay? Now, it's not that we're saying that all science is wrong. We'll talk about that in a bit. But what we're saying is, if there's a conflict and we can't figure out you know, how to reconcile these two, we as Christians say, we believe the biblical text, because that's been around since the creation of the world. And science is constantly changing. And they go on, they say, we affirm that since God is the author of all truth, 
all right, both natural revelation and special revelation, biblical and extra-biblical, are consistent and cohere. And that the Bible speaks truth when it touches on matters pertaining to nature, history, or anything else. Okay, it's not saying that everything in the Bible is, um, <coughs> is you know, the, the Bible always answers all scientific questions. It's not saying that. But if it does touch on those areas, then it speaks truth. We further affirm, affirm that in some cases, extra-biblical data have value for clarifying what Scripture teaches and for promoting correction of faulty interpretations. And so we've seen, then, <clears throat> many times in the past, science corrects the Bible, you know, understanding, not, not, not the text, but our understanding of the Bible, like Galileo. Um, in Galileo's time, uh, it, it was thought that the, that the um, sun and the moon revolved around the earth. Galileo said, no, that's not right. According to his scientific calculation, actually, the earth revolved around the sun. Well, um, that wasn't against the Bible. It was just their understanding of what the Bible was saying. And so... Sometimes science can correct our faulty interpretation of what the Bible says. We deny that extra-biblical views ever disprove the teaching of Scripture or hold priority over it. Okay? So, extra-biblical views, then, um, can sometimes correct us, but they don't disprove the teaching of Scripture. We stay with Scripture. That's what it's saying. We affirm the harmony of special with general revelation and therefore a biblical teaching with the facts of nature. We've already talked about that. God speaks both through nature, his natural revelation, or general revelation, and through the word, his special revelation. We deny that any genuine scientific facts are inconsistent with the true meaning of any passage of Scripture. All right? As those who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we say... <coughs> that genuine scientific facts, we deny that any of them are inconsistent with the true meaning of any passage of Scripture. And yes, sometimes our, our understanding is, is uh, clarified through science or through you know, natural revelation. But we stick with Scripture. We affirm that Genesis is factual as is the rest of the book. Now we say that because there are other theories that it's, it's allegorical or it's just some stories and so on. We say no, as Christians, it is factual. It is true. We deny the teachings of Genesis 1 through 11 are mythical and that scientific hypotheses about earth, history, or the origin of humanity may be invoked to overthrow what Scripture teaches about creation. Okay, so, um, so what we say then is that the relationship between science and the Bible, and I kind of thought, you know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message, and I believe it's like a, it's like a marriage. Um, God created both, and we don't always, in marriage, husband and wife don't always agree. Um, now, maybe in your home it's, it's different, but in our home we don't always agree. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but committed to the relationship. All right? I like that kind of, I like that, you know, that analogy. Um, we don't always agree. We're different. 
Science and, and the Bible, you know, sometimes bring different kinds of understandings, but we're committed to the relationship because God created both natural world and the Bible. So what we're saying is that the science and the Bible are complementary, not contradictory. And we're not saying that sometimes they are contradictory, but a proper understanding of both will lead to harmony, not to, um, not to you know, contrariness. So, Jay Gould was a great paleontologist and evolutionary biologist, and he said this, no scientific theory, including evolution, can pose any threat to religion. For these two great tools of human understanding operate in complementary, not contrary fashion in their separate realms. Science is an inquiry about the factual state of material world. Religion as a search for spiritual meaning and ethical values. So in other words, and he's, he's not a Christian, but he's talking about that there should not be, you know, they should not be contrary to one another they should complement one another. But they have, different, they have different areas of inquiry. Science, what science is, it's the using the scientific method to understand what the natural creation is all about. Religion is primarily about our relationship with God, about spiritual meaning and ethical values. So they ought to they ought to complement one another. So it's not science that's the enemy. This is what a commentator says this. It is naturalism. All right? Let me say that again. It's not science that's the enemy. It's naturalism. The scientific endeavor, by its very nature, operates by means of what I would call an atheistic premise. That is, it tries to figure out the natural world without resorting toward resorting to supernatural explanations. So where we, where we depart from science is that we say there is a creator. God spoke it all into existence. And because God spoke it into existence, there ought to be, there ought to be a complementary uh, understanding, mutual understanding of the two. But where we have problems is where we say, yeah, uh, it all operates on its own. We don't need to have God in the picture. And we say as Christians, hold on, <clears throat> we believe that there is a supernatural God who spoke everything into existence. It all started with God. So what we're saying is Christianity and science do not need to be at war with one another. And I think that's important for us as Christians to Furthermore, the trend is toward the affirmation of the biblical account. And it, the more that I, you know, that science discusses new things, the more that it, it actually affirms what the Bible has to say. True science, true good science, affirms what, what, the, what Scripture has to say. Let me just give you um, a... Uh, in the 1990s, there were three discoveries which support the biblical text. Just as an example. Number one, um, realize that the earth is a limited number of years old, not an infinite number of years old. Okay? It, it was believed by many scientists that the 
earth was and the universe was, was infinite itself. And we discovered that no, it is not infinite. The creation is not infinite. God is infinite who created the creation. Furthermore, we found that the universe can be traced back to a single ultimate origin of matter, energy, time, and space. In other words, it all came from one, one source. And who's that support source? Yeah, it's our God. <coughs> um, so, and furthermore, the universe is expanding from a single point. Thirdly, the universe, our galaxy, and our solar system exhibit more than 60 characteristics that require exquisite fine-tuning. I don't know, have any of you ever watched, uh, we have it at home, it's a DVD called The Privileged Planet. Any, any of you ever watched that? The Privileged Planet. Uh, we have it, we can loan it to you. Um, but what it does is it goes into a couple of those, um, it, those instances where the Earth, is, it's absolutely incredibly amazing that the Earth exists and supports life. And it's, you know, the chances of that are like 0. .000, you know. It, it's just for one of them, it's almost like an infinite possibility that Earth could exist on planet Earth. I mean, I'm sorry, that life could exist on planet Earth. It's almost an impossibility. And then you multiply that by 60. And those are just the ones that they know about. So what we're saying is, our God has exquisitely fine-tuned planet Earth so that we can have life on it. And why did he do that? Because he loves us. He loves us. It's a plan for us. And man, in day six, is the purpose of his creation is to bless us and call us to a relationship with himself. Furthermore, Many scientists now believe in God, and have, actually. There's a common misconception that all scientists are atheists, but that couldn't be further from the truth. While studies have found that scientists tend to be much less religious than the general public, a survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, and that's the premier uh, research uh, organ, and they found that just over half of scientists, 51%, believe in some sort of deity. Okay? Now, it may not, they, you know, not all of them are going to say it's God, but they're going to say there's, there, there has to be something uh, beyond, you know, beyond the, beyond the physical. Uh, specifically, 33% of scientists say they believe in God. Okay, so one-third of the scientists out there believe in God. Some of the greatest Nobel laureates and pioneers in science believed in God. And I'm going to go into just a couple of those uh, to show you um, one of them is Francis Collins, the director of the Human Ge Genome Project. Uh, we had a friend of ours, that his brother, worked with that hu uh, Human Genome Project. Uh, Albert Einstein said this, um, everyone who is seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and to which we with our power, powers may feel humble. In other words, he said, there is a God. He said, he said this, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. I love that statement. Science without religion is lame. 
Okay? It doesn't, it, it doesn't, the problem with science without religion is it doesn't answer the big questions of life. Who am I and why am I created? How did all this come into existence? How did life come about? And so on and so forth. The big questions. And if you think science can answer that, you're in the wrong realm. But religion without science is blind. And so I believe that we as Christians then, we need to have an understanding, not that we all need to be scientists, but we need to have a reason for the hope within us. And I think we need to have an under, we need to be able to answer the people who are, who are saying that you don't need religion, you don't need God, you don't need Christ. <clears throat> this next one is going to floor you. Um, this is one of those who believed in God, Charles Darwin. <laughs> All right. uh, listen to this statement by Charles Darwin. I have never denied the existence of God. I think the theory of evolution is fully compatible with faith in God. I think the greatest argument for the existence in God is the impossibility of demonstrating and understanding that the immense universe, sublime all measure, and man were the result of chance. Okay, now you can understand from a lot of people, but from Charles Darwin... Uh, that almost sounds contradictory, but it's not. He was a believer. Sir Francis Bacon, the great, uh, great philosopher and scientist. Sir Isaac Newton. Um, this. What we know is a drop. What we do not know is a vast ocean. The admirable arrangement and harmony of the universe could only have come from the plan of an omniscient and omnipotent being. And, and so what we're seeing is that historically... There has not been a conflict between science and God and, and belief in God. And that really has been in the last you know, couple of hundred years, which we don't have time to go into the whole explanation of it and history of it. But many scientists in history and many scientists today believe that there is a God. So I'd like to talk then um, a, a bit here about there are four Christian views of creationism. All right? And I think you've got to understand this in order to understand how we interpret Genesis chapter 1. But I need to let you know all of these, uh, one of them I have a little bit of problem with it, calling it Christian, but, but um, all of them are Christian, you know, Christian understanding of creationism. Professor Norman Geisler said this. He said, everything in the Bible is literally true, but not everything is true literally. All right? I like that. Um, Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the door. No one looks for a doorknob or hinges or leaves coming out of his ear. Okay? So it's, it's, it's literally true. Everything in the Bible is literally true, but it's not true literally. In other words, we can't always say that, um, you know, like that, that Jesus is the vine. We're not, we're not he's, he's comparing himself to a vine. He's not saying, I am a vine. In the, the Bible has parables and has figures of speech. We adopt the literal method of interpreting the Bible as opposed to the allegorical method. All right? So there's literal and there's allegorical where you spiritualize the meaning of the Bible. 
For those proponents, the resurrection didn't happen. Literally, it was just a spiritual resurrection of the disciples. So, so we don't want to go to a, an allegorical understanding of Genesis. So, okay, there's four, four views, and we're not going to go into them in great depth. We're just going to breeze over them, but enough that you can identify maybe where you are and where people are coming from. The first is, is called the Young Earth Hypothesis. And this is Ken, Ken Ham, um, and he has an organization called Answers in Genesis. Uh, this is the um, Institute for Creation Research in San Diego. They come from this uh, point of view, and there's, I think the website is up there. Yeah, the website is up there if you want to check it out more. They hold that the whole universe is as young as the earth, and they say that the problem is in the dating techniques the, how, we, how we date, how old the earth is, and that we can look at those things and say, um, actually, they're not, they're not accurate. Some of young earth um, believers believe in the validity of the 24-hour view, which claims that God created the world in six literal 24-hour 24 24 days, which is the, which is the, the uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word yom, and the question is, what is yom? What does it mean here? Is it a, is it a literal 24-hour day, or, as we'll see in a moment, um, epochs or, or eras? Um, and they say, the young earth people say, evening came and then morning seems to indicate a literal day. Um, and so they say they are 24-hour uh, evening and morning. Then there's the old earth. Uh, people, and this has sprung up more recently, I think. Um, and one of the proponents of that is Hugh Ross. Have anybody read his stuff? Okay. Um, and Hugh Ross says God speaks both through His revealed Word, the Bible, and creation itself, Bible and science. And so they accept the scientific dating for the age of the universe. So if the if science would say the, the, you know, the universe is billions of years old. They say, okay, let's harmonize that with, uh, with the biblical text. And not taking, not, you know, and again, this is not saying that we believe science over the Bible. It's just saying that we use science to help us to interpret what the Bible has to say. So it's, it's, it's interpretation. It's not, it's not rewriting the biblical text, in other words. So they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but they say, as I said, that Earth was created billions of years ago. The creation days are six sequential, non-overlapping, long periods. So when the when the when Hebrews says Yom, you know, in day one and day two and day three and so on, what they're saying is these are epochs or ages. And animals existed way before the arrival of humans. Adam and Eve were created about 12,000, 135,000 years ago. They're historical figures, but they, they, they come later. Creation comes first, and then man shows up, um, you know, on day six. Okay, then there's the uh, view, and this is the one that I, I, I have trouble with. I don't think it's right to really call it a Christian worldview, but, uh, but a lot of people do. And they say evolution is real and the Bible is true. So it's called evolutionary creationism. And 
they, uh, here's a def definition. Evolutionary creation is a view God created the universe, earth, and life over billions of years. There, they have that in common with the old earth. That the gradual process of evolution was crafted and governed by God to create the diversity in all life on earth. So they look, um, so they believe that humans evolved from lower life forms from apes. So you know the, the picture that you see all the time with, uh, they, they say yes, that, that we, we believe that. Um, that's why I have problems with it. I, I, I think it's hard to believe in that and, and say that God created the heavens and the earth. But. And they say that Adam and Eve might not have been historical figures, but were representatives of humanity. Okay? So I, you, know, you can see why I have some problems with, with this particular view. Okay, and then the last one is not really a... Um, a well, let, let me just read this. Now, and this is Stephen Meyer, the Discovery Institute. And he says this, the formal theory of intelligent design, okay? And what it's saying is that God, that the universe is so incredibly complex that we, can't, we have to say that there is an intelligent designer. The form, formal theory of intelligent design is clearly distinct in both methods and then this, this is really important that you know this. It is not based upon the Bible. Okay? Now, let, let me explain that. Intelligent denying is not a deduction from or an interpretation of a religious text, but an inference from scientific evidence. It doesn't offer an interpretation of the book of Genesis, nor does it posit a theory about the length of the biblical days of creation or the age of the earth. So they're making it clear up front what this is, it's a, it's a bunch of scientists who say that the theory of evolution and the, the theory of, of Earth and the universe, you know, taking God out of the picture, is impossible because it's too complex. You can't explain, you can't explain the creation of the universe without, a, without saying that there is an intelligent designer. And of course, you know, and most of these are, are Christians, but not all of them. And they're not saying that, okay, they're not trying to, to, to go back to Genesis in this. They're just saying scientific evidence itself says that this is impossible. There is not a God. There has to be a God. Okay, so where do we go from here then? Um, you know, what's the, what's the application of all this? Well, I, it can only take us to one place, and that is to thanks for God, to God for what he has done. I mean, when you look at what God did, and that he loved us so much that he gave us the creation, and he blessed us and called us and, 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 and created us to enjoy him forever, the only thing you can do is to say, thank you, God. And I believe that the study of Genesis 1 should not bring us to the place of arguing about, you know, <clears throat> about the length of a day or about any of that. It should bring us to the place where we say, thank you, God, for what you've done. Are absolutely incredible. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all you heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, 
and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. So where do we come in all this? We come to the place where we say, God, you are, you are unbelievably uh, magnificent. There is no equal to God. Uh, um, Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one, calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So we praise God. We thank God for the beauty of his creation. I mean, you know, you just... <laughs> You look at the, a lot of times I'll just sit there and we, you know, we love to, um, we'll just sit out back, not in the summer, but in the, you know, right around dusk, and we look out at the mountains and we just praise God for what he has done, the creation that he has done. I mean, you look at the, the birds and the flowers and the mountains and the seas and all that there is, and I think it just brings you to the place where you say, God, you are absolutely, unbelievably wonderful. <laughs> you know, that, there's no other explanation. You look at the order of the creation, and how God has ordered all things, and everything fits together. You look at the complexity of his creation. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that, you know, that we've done with the intelligent design people have done is to look at the DNA molecule and how incredible the DNA molecule is and how incredibly uh, complex just the, you know, the basic life form of a molecule is, that it could not possibly have been created by anything but an intelligent, wonderful, loving God. Anything else is impossible. You look at the diversity of his creation. There are nine to 10,000 species of birds. <laughs> wow. There's seven million species of insects. Some of them I wish we didn't have, but, but there are seven million species of insects. God has created, and some of them, you just look at some of the nature films, and the, you know, the, just the complexity and the beauty of all these different creatures that God has made are absolutely stunning. We look at this sustaining nature of his creation, that he sustained, he not only created all things, but he keeps everything going day after day, year after year, season after season. You know, God is incredibly um, sustaining. And he's not only the creator, he's the sustainer as well, as it says in Colossians chapter 1. And then we praise him for the vastness of his creation. How vast it is. And you look and, and stars are, you know, billions of light years away. We praise him for the uniqueness of planet Earth. But most of all, we praise him for the beauty of his plan. God created all things. God, mankind falls. God judges sin. And then he provides the sacrifice for sin through his son. He brings all things to a final conclusion. And someday, it's all gonna, there's going to be a new heaven or a new earth. God is going to bring everything into conclusion. That's our God. Isn't that incredible? Who he is and what he has done. Revelations 4, beginning verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the 
throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Someday we're going to have that privilege of standing in, in heaven and worshiping God forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God is an awesome God, isn't he? <laughs> you know, that's not, God is an awesome God. Um, he is absolutely awesome and incredible. And I think that, you know, when we dig into Genesis, that's, where we that's what we come to. God, you are absolutely, incredibly wonderful and awesome. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. You are a great and mighty God. Thank you. Jesus. pray and dance at the same time. Our feet can be happy because you are an awesome God. You have, done, you have made the universe and the timing doesn't really matter. This knowing that it has to be something, someone, some intelligence beyond our understanding that could put us 
put all these things here, put all these things in the universe, wherever they are, and send them, start them moving. Lord, we ask that we move closer to you, that with every day and every step, this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.